Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I examine the world of tech and its impact on public policy. I tend to go and visit countries, obviously virtually. I've been to France, I've been to Holland, I've been to Israel, I've been to Estonia. I talk to interesting thinkers about tech, whether that's Tony Blair or Benedict Evans. And I talk to the founders of tech companies in particular sectors to ask them about how their company is affected by public policy, whether that's a deep dive into something like deep fakes or looking at the defense industry. But I'm delighted today that my guest is none other than Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Now, Malcolm holds a special place in my heart because in 2013, he was my opposite number. He was the Minister for Communications in Australia when I was the Minister for Communications in the UK. But then rather humiliating for me, he went straight from that job to become Prime Minister of Australia, which is not a feat that I managed. But to be fair, Malcolm had been the leader of the opposition before. So I guess it wasn't that much of a surprise. But the other interesting thing about Malcolm is he obviously made a name for himself long before politics. He was a very well-known lawyer and became very no well known in the UK for defending a man called Peter Wright, who published an explosive spy book called Spycatcher, and also as a successful investor before he entered politics with his own investment firm and also working for Goldman Sachs. And indeed, he made some very shrewd investments in the first dot-com boom. And he's now back as an investor running his own investment firm. So he's got a great oversight into the investment scene in Australia, the tech scene in Australia, and the public policy tech scene in Australia. So Malcolm, welcome. Thank you, Ed. Great to see you and be with you again. So I just want to start, I mean, let's just take a dive straight in. You were Prime Minister of Australia 2015 to 2018, and I had a look at obviously what you did and what you achieved as Prime Minister, and it's no surprise at all that tech and tech policy was front and centre. And I do remember riffing off Australia quite a lot when I was the Minister for Telecoms because I got a lot of grief for broadband and you inherited quite a controversial broadband project when you became Prime Minister. Uh, just uh, It's kind of boring, but it is essential. The digital infrastructure of a country is kind of what makes it tick. And uh, you look at Joe Biden in the US, he's still banging on about broadband. We're still banging on about broadband. Are you still banging on about broadband in Australia? Tell us what the issue was when you were Prime Minister and what's happening now? The issue before I was PM, you know, say if you go back 10 years or more, was simply that uh, we didn't have ubiquitous broadband. You know, we had, uh, there was a bit of HFC, okay broadband there. There was, people had DSL in various incarnations on the copper wire network, but it was pretty rubbish overall. And so the question was how to get to ubiquitous broadband. Now, what uh, happened was the Labor government led by Kevin Rudd actually went bonkers, in my humble opinion, uh, because having absolutely no understanding of business, they decided they would build a government-owned national broadband network which would overbuild and put out of business the existing telecom, to, you know, Telstra, uh, which is our like, equivalent to BT, Telstra fixed-line network, and their proposal was that it would be fibre to the premises for about 93% of households with fixed wireless and satellite making up the rest, satellite obviously doing the more remote areas. 
They had no idea what it would cost. It was a shambles. They, by the time we got into government in 2013, they, I think, had connected about 50,000 premises and it was a total mess. So when I inherited it, I used people used to say, what it's, what's it like? And I would say it is like being the guy who goes, gets lost in the Irish countryside, goes into a pub, asks for directions to Dublin, only to be told, if I were you, I wouldn't be starting from here. Right. So anyway, what we did was we looked at it, and I'd done a lot of research before we got into government, you know, how, how to do this, how to get ubiquitous broadband as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And clearly, there is a sort of a bit of a fibre cult. People say fibre to the prem is the only way to go. It's certainly, I guess, the best way, it's probably the only way really to get everybody with, you know, a thousand megs connectivity, but people actually don't need that and they certainly won't pay for it. So a better approach is what the type of approach we took, which was a multi-technology mix. And without going, there's a lot about this in my book, a bigger picture for those that are really interested in it. But we basically took over the existing fixed line networks and we did fibre to the node. We upgraded the HFC or in process of upgrading that to DOCSIS 3.1, fibre to the curb, a whole lot of different things. But the goal was to get everybody connected as quickly as possible and at the lowest cost. That has now been achieved. And indeed, the, the build was complete, completed, you know, effectively by the beginning of last year, which was just in time for the pandemic. So people could work from home. Now, if we'd stuck to the Labor Party's fibre to the premises thing, not only would it have cost a huge amount more, but it would have only been about half done last year. The thing that takes time in building a telecom network is not the electronics or you know, all the, the medium you use, whether it's copper or glass, it's the civil works. You know, It's people with shovels and drills and digging things up, right? So anyway, so I, I have no doubt we, got, we, we made the right call. We've been vindicated by events. And uh, it will get upgraded all the time. You know, one of the great fallacies at the time was there were people who said, do it once, do it right, and do it with fibre. And I said, well, look, do it with fibre, that's an opinion. Do it right, that's another opinion. But do it once is wrong. I said, when you build a telecom network, you're not building a bridge. You know, you're building something that is dynamic. It will be upgraded and tweaked and expanded constantly. A lot of people think if they go infrastructure, and they compare a telecom network, you know, which has got elements, as you know, that become obsolete in you know, less than a decade, much less than a decade, and compare that to a great big reinforced concrete bridge that basically build, it'll be there in 100 years without much having to be done to it. So if I could just change gear or switch, no pun intended, the people that I think did this the best, if I may say so, are actually the New Zealanders. Interesting. Yeah, so I'll tell you what they did. John Key was the Prime Minister and he came with a business background. And John basically said to Telecom New Zealand, which was, was their equivalent of BT or Telstra, we have a bag of gold here. You know, in my right hand, I have a large bag of gold and it is available to subsidise the construction of high-speed, you know, fibre or mostly fibre networks across New Zealand, we will have a reverse auction in each area. In other words, the person who asks for the least subsidy gets the, the money, but you cannot be 
vertically integrated with a retail telco. And TCNZ did not, they had done the functional separation that you did in the UK with BT, but they didn't want to actually formally split. Key insisted that that was the rules, them's the rules, and they missed out on the first couple of areas because electricity companies who had transmission and distribution networks got the gig. That was a big wake-up call, so they promptly split. And so you have, in New Zealand, you have Chorus, which is the broadband network company, and you've got Spark, which is the, um, you know, the retail telco. Yeah. And so essentially the advantage of that was you had your broadband rollout being done by a company which had 100 years or more experience of rolling out fixed-line telecom networks, and it also had all of the pipes and ducts and pits and you know, all of that boring but utterly essential infrastructure that enabled you to do it. And so the Kiwis, to their great credit, got ubiquitous broadband, I mean, as we have, but I think they got it actually at a much more, in a much more cost-effective way. Now, there's a million other factors, not least of which is labour costs are lower there and, and they direct vary a lot of things. Uh, their building standards are a bit more lenient. But I, I think looking around the world, I think it was probably the best. They probably did the best. It's a big debate still in the UK about whether to split uh, BT into a wholesaler and a, a retailer. And also, I totally agree with you about planning. I mean, broadband is essential, but very boring. And the really boring bit about broadband is it's got nothing to do with the technology. It's got everything to do with the planning. If you can sort out the planning, you can get on. But I mean, how is Australia faring at the moment? Because obviously now in the UK, the big debate is 5G, getting the masks out. Are you ahead of the game on 5G? Well, it's, it's the, the, you know, I, I made the decision in 2018 uh, well, you know, my government did, I should hasten to it, cabinet decision, but we made the decision not to allow high-risk vendors, including Huawei and ZTE, into 5G here. So uh, it is, but it is, yeah, it's it's rolling out. I mean, I think the, yeah, I, I don't, it's, it, it isn't really a public, you know, a public issue. The question as to how much wireless will compete with fixed-line broadband is a is a valid one, but, you know, it's a, I think it it will obviously in certain contexts, but you know when you're talking about the volumes of data, which is mostly video that is being streamed across the uh, the internet, it's it's hard to see how wireless you know will play other than a niche is the wrong word, but a secondary role, if you know what I mean. Right, let's get on to the sexy stuff. So uh, I've been told that people only ever listen to half a podcast. <laughs> We're going to do the interesting stuff now. Yeah, right. So this is the sexy bit. Right, good. I'm going to jump straight to the, the hottest topic that's uh, in terms of tech policy that Australia's made a global name for itself is uh, the relationship between newspapers and Facebook and Google. And indeed, Microsoft had a walk-on part. So I want to ask you, Malcolm, as You've already demonstrated in the last 10 minutes your extensive knowledge of this uh, sector. So I'm not an apologist for Facebook. There's lots wrong with Facebook. But I couldn't help feeling mildly sympathetic to Facebook's position. There's lots of regulation you could do about how platforms should give access to players like newspapers. But it seemed to me like the Australian government was doing a special favor for the newspaper and media industry that didn't, didn't have a lot of intellectual coherence to it. What was your view of the Facebook issue well look I, I think it's a I think it's a fair criticism I mean the reality is that the newspapers do not have to pay to be on pay- Facebook any more than you do it's essentially the government has 
for all practical purposes, imposed, the Parliament has imposed a tax on Google and Facebook and made them give it to News Corporation, which absolutely drove this. I mean, Google and Facebook, when they were negotiating uh, amendments to the legislation, were not talking to the government's lawyers, they were talking to News Corp's lawyers. It's actually a very unedifying saga, and it would not have happened if I'd been PM, I can tell you that. There is, however, an issue about lack of revenue for traditional you know, news organisations, journalism, and so forth. I think it would have been much better and more transparent to have a digital advertising tax that was right across the board and then rebated that to companies, you know, like newspapers and broadcasters that use, you know, that, that actually employ journalists, journalists and then have the rest distributed, uh, you know, on a sort of equitable basis to companies that did engage in, in quality journalism. And when I say quality journalism, you know, I mean journalism, which is news reporting, which is accurate, commentary, which is balanced in accordance with, for example, the legislation that applies to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, or which we used when I was a young lawyer, you know, decades ago, uh, used to apply to commercial broadcasters as well. Because to be honest, the forcible transfer of money from Google and Facebook to Rupert Murdoch does not seem to serve the public interest certainly doesn't serve the interests of quality journalism. Uh, I mean, I think Murdoch has done enormous damage to liberal democracy, particularly most markedly in the United States. And uh, there is actually no requirement or reason to be certain that the money so transferred, so paid, uh, will actually be used for employing more journalists. It may just be a wealth transfer from the shareholders of Google and Facebook to the shareholders of News Corp and other media companies who naturally have all, all lined up to get their bowl of gruel as well when it was going. It is a fiendishly difficult issue. I mean, the whole taxing of the platforms is now very much to the fore. I mean, it's kind of wrapped up in the whole international tax uh, regime. You've got Joe Biden now talking about a minimum corporation tax across the world, which again, I think is a sort of uh, an interesting take. I mean, I think that the, the platforms have kind of been used as the poster guys for how global companies can move their tax jurisdiction around, something that has to be uh, addressed. But one of the things I think that came out of the Facebook media row was actually, in a kind of a good way, I think a lot of people see Australia as a kind of test bed for tech regulation. I mean, here in the UK, we've got the online harms bill coming down the track where we're going to try and regulate how platforms handle their content. What's the debate like uh, in Australia? Because Australia, Canada, these kind of jurisdictions are now seen as kind of groundbreaking in, in this area of tech regulation. Yeah, well, look, I think when I was your counterpart uh, as communications minister, one of the reforms we introduced was establishing what was then called the Children's E-Safety Commissioner and is now the E-Safety Commissioner. And we've um, created some offences that were, you know, uh, offences, I mean, that were uh, related to, you know, misuse of online platforms, particularly, you know, in a way that would terrorise people. Um, I don't mean with terrorists, you know, that would be used to, uh, you know, harass people and so forth. But most importantly, we established this office of an e, now the e-safety commissioner, whose job it is in large part to provide 
support and guidance and help to conciliate issues between platforms and consumers and users. The person who is the eSafety Commissioner uh, right now is a really impressive, capable uh, woman called Julie Inman Grant, who used to be worked with Twitter. Uh, she's an American, but you know now an Australian. And uh, you know I'd encourage you to get her on on your show. She's absolutely lives and breathes this stuff. And I, I think we were ahead, but you know the, the the approach you've got to take with regulation like this, particularly in a dynamic environment, is to uh, basically say we're operating in beta all the time. And I, I used to say this a lot with other things too. You know. It can't guarantee this is the if all of this is going to work. It's the best idea we've got at the moment, and uh, if it doesn't work, we'll dump it. If, if we can improve it, we'll improve it and treat it like that. I totally agree with you. I mean, when we debate the online harms uh, legislation here in the UK, there are lots of people who say, "Oh, this is terrible. This is wrong." And my view is, you know, we're just trying to work out what the hell to do. We acknowledge that these companies are not broadcasters; they're not publishers; they don't fit into any traditional mold. And why should people therefore expect regulation to work? first time you're just probing what you're doing i wonder what you think i mean how did you find the tech companies when you dealt with them i found them almost impossible to deal with on the public policy front i found they didn't quite get the it was always the case that if a politician tried to talk about tech regulation they were told you don't understand tech and my view to the tech world is, well you don't understand civic society i think if you're going back we're talking about nearly a decade ago i don't think that facebook certainly entirely understood what they'd created. And, and that's not surprising. And you see, they're being torn in two directions, because on the one hand, they're being told, look, you are a bulletin board, effectively, you shouldn't be impeding free speech, people should be able to say what they like, this was the great promise of social media. On the other hand, they're being told, you have got to keep all sorts of categories of hate speech, child exploitation material, terrorist material, threats of violence off your platform. The tension is that the more and more Facebook, for example, and I mean, this applies to others as well, the more and more they pour into the business of moderating their content, the more they look like a publisher. And you see, if they're a publisher, then they're liable for everything that's on their platform. So, I mean, if you write a letter, to the Guardian, which is defame somebody, the subject of that defamation can sue you, of course, but they can also sue the Guardian. Whereas Facebook, of course, because of legislative protection in the UK and elsewhere, has been able to say, hey, we're just a bulletin board. And in some jurisdictions, they're able to not be liable if they take the stuff down once there's a complaint made and others, they are treated as liable, just as a newspaper would be. But, you know, I think we can't, you can't expect Facebook or any other big social media platform to be as aware of what is on their site as a newspaper is that has to make a conscious decision to print every single word that's in their newspaper. But equally, you can't be in a sort of utterly irresponsible, you know, all care or, or no care and no responsibility. So you are now an investor or an investor again, as it were, and you're investing in a lot of different sectors. Let's talk about the Australian tech scene because it is actually pretty exciting. I mean, you've, um, you've got a particular focus on cybersecurity. So let's start with that. 
Yeah, well, look, I, I've, I've always had an interest in signals intelligence and cyber, hence cyber and security. Part of my sort of program as PM was to establish a national innovation and science agenda, which really supercharged the tech economy here. And it is now, there is a lot of money available, a lot of activity. It's very, very vibrant. But I also set up a national cybersecurity strategy, the first one, and both focused on, you know, public actors like, you know, ASD, which is our equivalent of GCHQ, and obviously uh, also the private sector, because this is a huge area of cybersecurity and a great opportunity for Australian technology. I'm involved with a number of cybersecurity companies. Probably the most prominent is a company called Casada which is uh, started by a young guy called Sam Crowther, who uh, worked for the Australian Signals uh, Directorate. It's a bot elimination technology. So it's basically able to protect your, your website, typically, or indeed an API, from you know, for allowing automated actors from accessing it. So in other words, you know, in a nutshell, keeping the internet safe for humans. But I'm also involved with an American company called Dragos, which is Robert M. Lee's company. He was um, one of the uh, people at the NSA that took down Sandworm, you know, that big yeah. uh, hack some years ago. A real, a real acknowledged guru there and works very closely with Dmitry Alperovich, who's another famous cyber security person. But all in all, uh, we're also working with a cyber firm in the UK, very small, you know, new one called CADO, C-A-D-O. We often collaborate with a specialist cybersecurity company and uh, investment company in the Valley uh, called 1011 Capital, founded by Alex Doll. So look, it's a lot going on here in this field. I have friends who are involved in you know, the VC business much more consistently than I am, who compare the size of our tech sector now to that of Israel. You know, and they say these, you know, Israelis definitely got better PR, but in terms of substance and scale and capital, Australia is now very comparable. And you've obviously got some very big companies, you know, the fintechs you'll be aware, aware of, Arc Afterpay, Atlassian, it's a huge company. Canva is a nut, it's not, not listed, but is another giant sort of design company. It's a, really, I, I, I tell you, I've never been more optimistic about our tech sector than I am today. But I'll tell you a funny story, if I may. In the early 90s or mid-90s, uh, I had a lot of entrepreneurial things going on. We had a gold mine in Ghana. Uh, we had a, a zinc mine we were developing in China, which we actually did, did got that done. But I was also trying to finance and financing a huge gold project in Siberia. This is about 93, 93, 94. The Wild West. No, oh yeah, man, this is the Wild West. This is in, this was like three hours flight north of Irkutsk, a place called Sukhoi Log. The the deposit now belongs to a Russian company called Polyus. Needless to say, in the late later nineties, the foreigners were all dripped of their investments. You know, and the reminder was, those of us who imagined that Russia was going to evolve into a rule of law democracy were <laughs> disappointed. But anyway. So I had no difficulty raising money for that here, but we also had an internet service provider called Aussie Mail, which was a telco effectively, and it had a couple of hundred thousand customers, it had real revenues, it was a real business, 
could not raise any money for it at all. So he actually took it public on the NASDAQ in 96. It was the first Australian company to go public on NASDAQ because we couldn't raise any money here. And the founder, well, I was a sort of co-founder, but the technical founder, our leader, Sean Howard, said, he said, Malcolm, how can you raise money for your Siberian gold mine, you know, 15 out of 10 on the risk scale, but, but you can't raise any money for our business? And it was a fair question because in those days, Australians had no interest in tech. Now, that is all completely changed. Mind you, that's, you know, 25 years ago, I suppose. So. That's your commodities heritage in Australia. But you mentioned earlier your national technology strategy that you instituted as prime minister. It's one of the first things you did. It was focusing on kind of tax breaks, investment funds. And you've talked earlier about cybersecurity and the links between people who have kind of worked in the signals intelligence world, very similar to the whole thesis about Israel's tech scene, this kind of link in a good way. I'm not saying this in a sinister way between people who do intelligence work in the Israeli Defense Force and then go on to found great companies. So you clearly understood and got and implemented that you could you can make a step change, a gear change in tech by government rolling up its sleeves and getting stuck in. So take us back to kind of 2015 when you kind of pushed that forward. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we put quite a bit of money at work. We started a couple of funds, provided some tax incentives. But I think, to be honest, the most valuable thing I did was actually talk about innovation positively. I used to say, it sort of almost became slightly uh, a parody, but it was a good line. I used to say, there's never been a more exciting time to be an Australian. And so I was, I mean, this was partly because Tony Abbott was very, you know, I was always telling people, scaring people, basic, basically. I wanted to be upbeat and positive. And, you know, my message was, have a go, doesn't matter if it doesn't work out, you'll learn something. Just, you know, I'm a strong believer in the value of a startup ecosystem. Because if you think about it from a public interest point of view, if you have some people start a company, let's say it's going to fail, right? So most of them do. The founders learn a lot. The employees learn a lot. They all actually get paid, generally not a lot of money, but they get paid and they pay tax on their wages and all that sort of thing. So the only people who will actually lose anything are the investors, but they'll lose something too. And they're invariably professional investors. So plenty of ways to lose money. You can lose it at the races too. So I just feel that if you've got a startup culture, people are learning so much and they may go from that startup and work in a big company or work for the government or vice versa. And I mean, in terms of the relationship between government and particularly the defence sector and the tech scene, private sector, it's so obvious. I mean, the Bibi Netanyahu will say, you know, in, in response to the question, who founded the Israeli tech sector? He says, Charles de Gaulle. People say, good grief, what's that got to do with it? He said, well, de Gaulle banned defence exports, arms exports to Israel, and that is basically where Israel's its own defence industry began because they had to start making all this stuff themselves because they couldn't be rely on buying it from other countries. So we put a lot of uh, effort into one of the other big agendas. My government was a defence industry plan and uh, particularly naval shipbuilding, most of which is going on in Adelaide. And you are already starting to see Adelaide becoming a tech centre because, you know, you've got some people who are working for Saab you know, or working on the submarine project. 
and they learn a lot, but they want to do their own thing or they don't get a promotion or they, you know, for whatever reason, they strike out and start their own business. I mean, I have a friend who's, you know, got a very substantial technology, sort of space technology business. Where did he come out of? The Royal Australian Air Force. So, you know, we, we've got to think about our defence expenditure and measure and, and attribute to it the spillover benefits. And this is where the bead counters in Treasury typically, as usual, know the price of everything but the value of nothing. And they say, oh, it's cheaper to buy this bit of kit from the Americans than it is to build it here. And you say, yes, that's, that's probably true if you assume the only benefit is the, use, is the acquisition and use of that capability. But in fact, it's part of a whole ecosystem. You, you need to you know, fire up and encourage, and that's why you need to have your own defence industry. Now, obviously, you're not going to build everything yourself, but I mean, I'll give you an example of a great company uh, we're investors in called Advanced Navigation, which has the best you know, autonomous position navigation and timing tech in the world. These are virtualized gyroscopes that will enable you to know your position without any you know, use of GPS or any other external communications. You can imagine how important, well, I mean, these exist now, but these guys have got the best product, uh, the smallest from a form factor point of view and most accurate. That type of technology has so many benefits and that's, that's the kind of thing you want to be encouraging because those are the, you know, they're the jobs of the future and truthfully in a country like Australia, unless we provide those opportunities here, people will just, I'll just go and work somewhere else. I mean, Australian pre-COVID, of course, we're all locked down at the moment, but pre-COVID, Australians are very mobile. You know, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you about talking about tech, which is what David Cameron did a lot when he was prime minister. It made a big, big difference. And also this relationship between kind of, we're talking now about creating our own ARPA in the UK and this kind of thing. We just had a defense review, which focused as much on artificial intelligence as it did on shipbuilding but we've only got a short time left i want to now finally i've used defense as a segue to go geopolitical because australia is in this kind of fascinating position of being a close neighbor of china and having you know an interesting relationship with china as we all do now uh there's a massive opportunity of southeast asia and china on your doorstep and there's also a massive i was going to say threat that's probably too strong a word but you know you can't be too careful so how does the kind of Australia, Southeast Asia, China kind of tech ecosystem work? What are the opportunities there? What are the obstacles, the threats? Does it help drive the Australian tech economy? Well, the, the answer is yes. But the first thing you've got to bear in mind is that, you know, China is a very big place. Beijing is actually equidistant from Sydney and London. So, yes, we, we're in the same time zone, more or less, as, as China, but we're not geographically that close. And Southeast Asia is a vast area uh, with a lot of very different economies. So, you know, you can't really generalise about this hemisphere. Oh, look, there is a massive technology action in China, obviously. I mean, so many companies, I mean, China's probably got more tech startups now than the United States, but also in the region. I mean, Indonesia has been a, for example, has been a very big adopter of uh, technology and um, social media in particular. There's a huge number of firms there. There's one I'm familiar with, Bakalapak, which is a sort of e-commerce 
platform, which has been doing very well, but there are many others. Gojak, you know, it's a very, very busy scene. Singapore, obviously, is a, you know, much more like a, is a very developed economy. I mean, I think technically they're st- they hang on to the developing nation status, but it's utterly spurious. It's, a, it's the most sophisticated city-state in the world. <laughs> and I thought I might say, I, I was actually talking to the Prime Minister, who's a very good friend of ours, uh, the other day, and I was saying, well, this is the ultimate accolade when Boris Johnson says he wants London to be Singapore on Thames. I mean, that's that's a hell of a compliment. Uh, but so, yeah, it's a there's just a massive opportunities all over the region in terms of relationship with China. It's our biggest export market, but it is for many countries. It is uh, also the biggest source of imports. But we've had a tough relationship over the last few years. China, the Chinese Communist Party government, is you know, putting pressure on Australia. There's a, uh, a degree to, you know, use pressure to get us to be more compliant. Uh, this is completely misconceived, but China's foreign policy at the moment is quite counterproductive. Yeah, totally. You know, the object of foreign policy is to win friends and influence people. And it's at some point, someone's got to say, hang on, is this really working? But, you know, our relations with Japan have never been closer. Relations with Indonesia never been closer. I, and I hope common sense will restore civility between Beijing and Canberra. It's a big area. You know, Metternich described Italy as a geographic expression. You know, that statement is even more true when you talk about this region because it's vast and a lot of differences between countries and very big differences within countries too. Yeah, no, that's true. So, look, final point. I mean, uh, maybe... uh, Give you a chance as well to comment on the Australian political scene at the moment, which I have to say makes the British political scene look like a vicar's tea party, in my view. But climate change. Climate change has kind of brought down governments, <laughs> had big impact on political careers. You're involved in hydrogen energy. You're big on climate change, but you've had a ruckus on climate change even quite recently. It's a highly politically charged issue in Australian politics. So talk a bit about climate change, climate change tech, and maybe a give your political opponents a kicking. <laughs> Ed, this is the bottom line. I mean, saying you believe or disbelieve in global warming is as intelligent as saying you believe or disbelieve in gravity. <laughs> but in Australia and the United States, the populist right of politics, supported by their amplifiers in the media, again, mostly owned by Murdoch, and the fossil fuel lobby have basically achieved in turning what should be an issue of engineering, economics and science into culture wars. Now, to your great credit, and I had an essay in a book that came out of, you know, monograph came out today from the Policy Exchange uh, making this point. And one of the great credits of the UK Conservative Party is that it did not get caught into that trap. And that's one of Dave Cameron's great legacies, I think, that's a very, very interesting point. I hadn't thought about it like that. Well, it's it's amazing, you know, because it's, I tell you, it's not, it's like it is literally, I mean, the right-wing media went, absolutely went to war on me and state liberal government buckled, as they generally do, because I was proposed, just recently, I proposed to be appointed, you know, the chairman of a state committee to advise on net zero energy or and clean economy, you know, but anyway, it was all about getting to net zero. And the criticism, the complaint was that I did not support the unrestricted 
expansion of coal mining. And what I was saying is that we should be, given declining export demand, we should be pausing mine expansions and basically developing a plan to best use existing mines and make the transition to a clean energy economy. All complete common sense. But the idea that in this fettered, fevered right-wing echo chamber, and you see it worst in the US, of course, the idea that the prime qualification for someone to chair an advisory board on net zero emissions is unequivocal, unconstrained support for the expansion of coal mining is surely lunatic. But <laughs> that's kind of where it is. And, you know, I, I think it's, um, as I said, you know, you guys are very lucky. I mean, I think part of it's probably due to the fact that you don't have the same, you know, big fossil fuel vested interests in the UK as we do yeah. in America and Australia. But I tell you, it's a, it's a great credit to the British Conservatives, you know, I mean, f- full of imperfections, like all political parties, but at least on that score, you're genuine Conservatives. I mean, most of the people in America and Australia who call themselves Conservatives, as I say here, would not know the difference between Edmund Burke and Tony Burke. Tony yeah. Burke being a prominent Labor Party front bencher here. It is, you know, I mean, Trump, I mean, you hear people talking about Fox News being conservative media. There's nothing conservative about Fox News or even Trump being a conservative. You know, Quinton Hogg would turn in his grave at the uh, sort of ratbaggery of uh, the American right, the people that claim to be conservatives. I feel we're just getting going and we could do a whole other podcast on what is conservatism. Malcolm, it's been fantastic. Thanks so much. Good. Great to see you, Ed. Shone through your expertise in this policy area and I look forward to seeing your future investments and companies like Canva, you know, I've met them, know them. There are Australian companies making big noises around the world. So it's exciting to check in with you. I hadn't expected to come to Australia on my world tour, but I suddenly had a brainwave a couple of weeks ago. Malcolm Turnbull would be a great guy to speak to you. I'm really pleased I did. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Ed. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.